0: today on Edge Effects. There has been and continues to be a kind of battle for a sense of what canned foods stand for. And I think it helped the industry to imagine that their consumers were these well-off women as a way of saying,
1: canned foods stand for something that you all can aspire to? Historian and food justice activist Baron Levesque speaks with historian Anna Zeta, author of the new book, *Canned: The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry. In the conversation that follows, Farron and Anna discuss the effective history of food and how race, class, and gender affect food access and equity. As they explore food justice activism and the contested landscapes of American food, they posit that the places and cultures we come from have everything to do with how we eat, and vice versa.
2: Its metal body conceals the contents. Its industrial origins conceal the story. So reads the hottest sentence ever written about a can. Hi, Anna. So great to talk to you today. <laughs> Congrats on your new <laughs> Thank book. Thank
0: you. It's exciting to be able to talk with you about it.
2: Absolutely. So... I'd love to hear the story of how and when you realized that this everyday opaque object was your entryway into a, a hidden history of food. And I keep imagining you leave that grad seminar we took together a thousand years ago, running home, popping open some peas and having the <laughs> lightning bolt moment. Is, is that what happened?
0: <laughs> well, it's always <laughs> nice to think that that's how our books begin, by some flash of inspiration. But I don't have c- quite such an exciting story. It was definitely more of a uh, intentional piecing together of lots of my interests to sort of see where they they might intersect so i always well, for a long time, I've known uh, since I wanted to become a historian that the history of food was really interesting to me, both because of sort of uh, my personal relationship to food as a child of immigrants, of growing up in a place where food was a marker of kind of cultural difference, and then also as a vegetarian and someone who had thought a lot about kind of the ethics of how we eat. And so I wanted to study food, but I didn't know what aspect of food. And actually, a even though it wasn't that grad seminar we shared, but one of uh, my graduate mentors Bill Cronin gave a talk or was maybe just in passing talking about the Icelandic food hakarl, which is like fermented shark meat and how, <laughs> right. you know, how the, um, it was this sort of ancient method of spearing a shark and then packing it under the sand and letting it ferment and turning this kind of inedible flesh into something edible, if very stinky. And it was this, uh, you know, idea that food preservation was something that was such a necessary way of life, especially for people who lived in very cold places who didn't have access to agricultural production much of the year. And thinking about food preservation kind of got me into thinking about these older methods of ways of eating out of season and out of place. And then as I started to look at different forms of food preservation, canned food emerged as this sort of first form that then grew into an industry that then connected me to my interests in business and consumer history. And um, that kind of led me to canned food. And the thing that really clinched it was as I started reading into canned food and the history of the canning industry, I found that the National Canners Association, which was the major trade group that whose, work, whose papers and archives were a major source for my book, eventually after lots of changes in their institutional title, into the present had become the Grocery Manufacturers Association, which today is kind of one of the major players in the food industry in terms of uh, lobbying and political power around food production. And that uh, Grocery Manufacturers Association was something I'd read a lot about in my contemporary is- interests in food. And so it then kind of clicked together that I could understand the modern food system, by looking at the history of canning. And that's when I said, okay, this is something I can spend, you know, a decade of my life on.
2: So... That's an amazing origin story. Um, and I was thinking about how, in the early days of the canning industry, you note that canners and consumers alike thought of canned food as almost magical and potentially revolutionary, but more often scary and weird. Mm-hmm. So, through your emphasis on consumer confidence, trust, and fear, you do such a great job of bringing in the many affective realities of American food Thank culture. You. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how you were able to sort through and historicize the many fantasies and feelings that animate this larger history of capitalism you're discussing in your book.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something I think I'm still struggling with even in my work now is... You know, so much of history, effective historical writing, I think, is being able to put readers in a place a long time ago when their, you know, kind of entire world was so different. And because canned food is so boring today, so you know, commonplace and basically invisible in our lives, it's really hard to project back into a time when it was scary or weird or revolutionary, right? And <laughs> right. There, there's this way that there are also not a whole lot of records of people who describe their interactions with canned food. There, there aren't a whole lot of those kind of intimate consumer moments to rely on. And so that's definitely something I'm trying to to shape in the book is sort of how did the canners themselves imagine these consumers? How did they try to kind of get at that moment of interaction with this weird and scary object? How did they imagine how to win over trust? And all of those things on the one hand are very institutional, very much about this broad system of capitalism, but at the core of it is always about these individual consumer decisions. Of course, right. those decisions are not, you know, we don't make them all on our own. We're very much then and now influenced by ads and marketing and, you know, increasingly neuro marketing today and all of these very highly sophisticated technologies to get inside the consumer brain. But still that moment when that consumer picks up the can of peas off the shelf and decides to bring it home and trust it and open it, that's the moment when this whole story plays out. And yeah, lately, I've been writing some new stuff. And I've been trying to think about kind of contemporary parallels. And so I've been using the example of like edible insects today, you know, like there's sort of the next food trend, or a lot of people are advocating edible insects as this new kind of healthy, environmentally sustainable, you know, next food source. But I think the reaction of people today, most Americans do not want to eat apple insects. They don't really see the need for it. Um, And I think, you know, there's some parallel to be made to the 19th century consumer and canned food as today and edible insects. And I think that drawing out that visceral response can maybe help readers today think about how someone might have felt at a time when canned food was as weird as, you know, cricket flour is today.
2: Right. Well, I'm sure we're all looking forward to your new bug bug (laughs) cookbook coming out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So in your chapter on Campbell's Soup called Great A Tomatoes, you talk about the change in how businesses communicated with customers after the Great Depression and how big corporations use market research to find out consumer desires and advertising to create desires. So I love that section. And I was wondering, what's the story of gender, race, and class here? And sort of who or what came first, the ad man or the housewife?
0: Yeah, that's lots of big, important questions. Yes, that (laughs) chapter on grade A tomatoes is looking at this particular moment in the New Deal era when canners, having gone from the last 50 years where they really were open to government intervention, to regulation, were welcoming it because they saw all of those as a way to build that confidence through external parties for consumers. But starting in the 1930s, for a variety of reasons that I write about, they started to feel like maybe the industry was powerful enough that they could target consumers themselves and not have to work through that third party of the of the federal or, or state governments. And one of the reasons that they were able to do that, one was just where they were in terms of their growth and technological development, but another was this burgeoning consumer movement that I find so fascinating in the 1930s where consumers, many of them, these middle class white women, female housewives, were emerging as organized forces to say, you know, if you're going to have an agency looking at industrial production, you need to have a consumer council that uh, is going to advise you on how this will affect the consumer. Consumers are as important as laborers and as, you know, other other recognized groups in these kinds of negotiations. And so on the one hand, you have this much more visible group of consumer advocates who who most of them are, uh, you know, those who have the power to go to speak before Congress. But at the same time, you have the rise of advertising and marketing as a kind of organized discipline and as one actor in that chapter Uses the phrase that consumers begin to become get atable, get atable. So we can get at who <laughs> they are. I just really like that word right. because there's this yeah. sense that it's always an imagination. You know, all if you watch Mad Men or whatever else, they're always imagining who it is that's going to be the audience for their advertising. And on the one hand, we know from statistics that there was much more diversity in the audiences especially by the 1930s in terms of race, class, and gender of who was buying and using canned foods. Um, It was a fairly ubiquitously used item by this period. But the advertising was always continued to be very narrowly targeted, you know, that you had these pen and ink drawings of these white women in fancy hats with feather plumes going into the store, you know, with their handbags and that continued to be. So I think I guess in terms of the question, I think the ad man in this story kind of comes before the housewife. I mean, I do think that the creation of the housewife consumer image followed the idea of the advertisers and who the canners wanted to be their market, who they wanted canned food to be associated with. Um, You know, I think there's been and continues to be a kind of battle for a sense of what canned foods stand for. And I think it helped the industry to imagine that their consumers were these well-off women as a way of saying, "Can food stand for something that you all can aspire to, rather than some fallback when you're too busy to prepare your food, which you know was often." a, a a clear reality.
2: Right. Absolutely. And that ties into my next question in terms of thinking of the way that battle for what it stands for, what canned food stands for changes over time, right? And so the the other night I was watching Chopped (laughs) um, and one of the competing chefs said, I might cook for the homeless, but I like to say we open hearts, not cans." Uh So I'm running a community kitchen these days and I'm totally on board with the idea that canned food is not the way but I also feel pretty uncomfortable with the kind of smug or highfalutin tone that's coming across here as well. Uh And so I think it's interesting to think about all the ways that racial capitalism and food justice efforts are both at odds and in cahoots and all kinds of in between. And one thing that really struck me in your book is how you address the class and and race-based complexities of access and equity when it comes to food. Mm -hmm. So... I was wondering how do you as a scholar activist create a usable past in the histories you write about and what are the practical and visionary politics that sustain your food justice activism? Yeah. And then my last little tag on to that was if they're sorry it's a big question yeah, no. Are there any community organizations or coordinated efforts that are modeling the kind of food justice activism that you want to see? Yeah,
0: those are big questions. And I'd love to hear more about what you think about all this too, as someone working in this space. Yeah, I and mean, I think, you know, so often when especially people outside the academic world, you know, know learn that I'm writing about canned food, they kind of say, So, should I eat canned food? Is it good? Is it bad? And I think that those questions, you know, as unfortunately in academia we never like simple answers, but you know, I think that those questions do oversimplify all the very, very many complex factors that shape why people choose to eat what they do. And I think really labeling almost any kind of food as good or bad makes it too flat that we, we really can't say those right. things without taking into account all the reasons that people eat what they eat, historical, family access, you know, all of these questions. And that labeling something as bad is really not not a very good way to get people to change their diets if that's what you're looking to do. Um, And I think, you know, many people can agree that there is sort of a public health crisis when it comes to the standard American diet and that change is necessary. However, I mean, I think we've already seen a lot of the really classist kinds of language that comes out of a lot of this food advocacy movement, although I think that's been changing in the last five to 10 years with an awareness of how much we have to have a sensitivity to those complexities. But the there are always trade-offs and that in some ways canned food, it has its, its you know, things that we can say, is it not being the freshest or the tastiest or, you know, sometimes having problems with packaging or BPA concerns. But on the other hand, compared to the broader spectrum of processed food that it's a part of today can be very, it can offer healthy, already cooked food, that doesn't, you don't have to have access to a a freezer to keep it frozen. If you're living in uncertain housing, you know, you basically just have to have a can opener and you can have food that's there and accessible. And that's a major reason why food pantries and food drives are so stocked with canned food is because it really does have this power to to transcend problems of access, I think. And in that way, I think it's snobby to poo-poo it, to suggest that we have to somehow get away from it, especially because I think even people who consider themselves foodies, even people who want to eat a lot of fresh food, I think often do use canned foods also. You know, I think it's a, a very clear and necessary part of even a broader kind of culinary Exercise. So, I mean, that's the beginning of an answer. It's just that it's. I think it's. We can't do that too much. Yeah. Another thought I had, or sort of story as part of this, was when I was living in Wisconsin, I uh, was part of the greenhouse, which was the environmental dorm on campus, and we got to teach little one credit seminars for that uh, dorm, and a lot of them were very much looking at sustainability, environmental practice, and I taught taught a class called Eating and Memory, and it was, wow, you know, having students. Uh, read personal essays about people's relationships to food in the past and their personal stories. And then they also carried out oral histories with family members or community members. And, you know, at some point, a student asked, like, wait, so what does this have to do with environmental studies? You know, what's the link between this kind of very humanistic approach to food and then that kind of very practical environmental approach? And we had a really great conversation. And, and I think one of the things they took away from it was if, you know, environmentalism moves your relationship to food and agriculture, then you're going to want people to change their diets in some specific way towards the end of more sustainability. But If that's the only lens you go into an exchange where you're trying to change people's food, you're going to ignore all of those many deeply layered personal histories and stories and memories that give people a reason to eat something that can feel much more important in the moment than whether it emits this many greenhouse gases or that many, right? And so I thought that a necessary part of any activist identity was one where we Try to be as sensitive as possible to the very many range, uh, range of experiences that people bring to any of their behavior with. And without that sensitivity, you know, it's a non-starter. You're going in and you're telling people how to live their lives in a way that's going to be off-putting and, and end up not being very effective. So, yeah, I think that uh, attending to the complexity is the first place to start with any kind of um, activism.
2: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then you did ask the question about. Community organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that so I now I live in Oklahoma, I'm a professor at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where OSU is is located is a very different kind of city than Madison, Wisconsin, where I did my PhD with you. And, you know, I think seeing the differences in the kinds of cities I live in now and then, and the kind of community organizations that are able to be active in those places has really Give me a huge appreciation for Wisconsin and all of the food activism that I was part of there. So all of my, all of my examples come from there for now, but I worked pretty closely with Community Groundworks in Madison, Wisconsin at, at Troy Gardens. And I thought it was definitely the place where I both I think was exposed to sort of food and agricultural activism, but also food justice activism, because such a central part of that organization was talking with and understanding the needs of the communities that they were working with. I first worked in the kids garden there and the entire idea of the garden was just to bring in kids from neighborhood community centers all of in North Madison and many of whom didn't really have access to any green spaces in their housing communities and just let them sort of play in the garden, you know, dig in the dirt, help plant things, taste new foods. And, you know, I think that that kind of thing can be done very indelicately and very thoughtfully. And the way that it was modeled for me there immediately made clear that the kinds of programming and activities we were doing were always being done in in conjunction with the leaders of those community centers. And it was never a doing for kind of practice and always a doing with. And if there was something we thought was a good idea and it was said, you know, that we got consultation that, no, actually, the kids might not like this or they might go go home and say things that feel insensitive to their parents or whatever, like those would be off the table. Yeah. And then also in, in Milwaukee, I think there are lots of great organizations. One year I helped organize the urban agriculture place-based workshop for for CHE, for the Center for C- Culture, History and Environment that produces edge effects. And um, we went to so many inspiring places to learn from the groups ha- uh, that were working in, in Milwaukee on urban agriculture and food justice. And um, one that stuck out was walnut way the walnut way conservation corps i don't know if you know about it it was a started as kind of a neighborhood revitalization project run by people from within the community who had come back to their neighborhood after some years away and had found it an unsafe place to be and a lot of gang activity and that kind of thing and they thought the place to begin was with you know restoring old vacant lots into urban gardens and um that's where they began. But then it grew into this huge sort of widespread economic development opportunity that was employing people from the neighborhood, training them in landscaping, setting up commercial kitchens and an outpost of the Fondy food market and these other aspects of Milwaukee and bringing them into the community and making them part of community revitalization from within. and that. It was such Love a it. yeah. It was such a successful, <laughs> uh, integrated, you know, thoughtful from ground the ground up. It, you know, a, an awareness that building food systems is never about building food systems. It's about building people. It's about building community. And that integrated view was, I think, what made it successful and, and stood out to me. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I could go so on. There's so like, many good, so yeah, many good organizations.
2: Of course, <laughs> we can do that. Later. Yeah, <laughs> but it sounds like from what you're saying that a lot of your Activism has come into being through teaching. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, reading Michael Twitty's mm-hmm. new book, The Cooking Gene. I don't know if you've it's, read that. No, yet. on my pile um,
0: of books to read. I haven't gotten it yeah, into yet. Yeah, some are reading. Yeah.
2: But Twitty has this great line about the contested landscapes of American food and how it's a quote culture looking toward ecology. And I love that. And so as a teacher, I was wondering how does your pedagogy? look toward an ecology, especially when it comes to teaching courses on food and history.
0: Yeah, yeah. And from what I've heard about Twitty's book, it just feels like it does so richly, this this idea of understanding that where we come from, both place the places we come from and the cultures we come from has everything to do with how we eat and, and vice versa. Absolutely. And yeah, so I think, you know, I mentioned earlier that moving to Stillwater, Oklahoma has really reshaped my sense of what food as a local cultural element can mean. And I think it's also thrown into relief how much my food interests were shaped by living in Madison, Wisconsin, and in a city that was so connected to food and where it, it was sort of just in the air, people breathed, even if they didn't really care about food, they still knew that it mattered as something to think with. Right. And here, it's very much not that way, uh, at least not, you know, not for the majority of my students. And I think, yeah, I think the same kind of attendance to ecology and to the places that my students come from is a critical part of being a good teacher because a lot of them come here from rural Oklahoma and Texas towns, from places that might be agricultural in nature, but whether or not they have any actual connection to agriculture is, is much more tenuous. Um, and I think helping them to understand how food matters elsewhere requires understanding the places that they do and don't have access to So one of the things I've really tried to do in my I teach an upper division food and culture food history class, and I've really tried to connect it to this local place. So at least in the first two years, I taught it every almost every week of the semester was taught around a different theme. And I had local producers, local entrepreneurs, anyone kind of in the food community would come in and do a guest lecture or presentation on what they're doing. And then that same week, we'd have a lecture on the history of that topic. So we might have you know, a local restaurateur come in and talk about their restaurant. And then we do a history of restaurants and then we'd have readings and discussion around. that.
2: That's so cool. Yeah.
0: And I mean, I think it was so great both because it, helped me build a network of other people interested in food here. But then the students got to know this city and town in a way that they often don't otherwise, you know, that they come to college and sort of are on campus and then that's it. And in this way they started to understand how place is built, how it's tied to local regulations, how what's possible and what's not has a lot to do with, you know, chambers of commerce and these local operators that can be kind of invisible to a lot of people and, I think are, to my mind, increasingly important as I think about making any kind of local change is understanding the city manager's office, understanding what the mayor does, understanding you know what the Chamber of Commerce does, <laughs> all those kinds of um, positions of power that shape the farmers' market right. and what restaurants come into town, and what kinds of if there can be community gardens, you know all these things are dependent on local politics and business. and so. Giving my students a taste of that feels like a really necessary part of helping them understand this place
2: and history in context. That's amazing. Yeah. I you. wish I could have taken that course.
0: <laughs> it's pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: so do you want to tell us if you have any projects on deck that you're excited about? Yeah.
0: I have lots of still in the works things that I am trying to formulate, but one that I'm very excited about that I'm just sort of coming off the high of it is I'm working on an anthology of essays about the making of modern food. I'm co-editing this project and also have an essay in it tentatively titled Acquired Tastes. And the thing that I think is most exciting about it is that we're really trying to write a book that is beautifully written, that, Uh, understand sort of the elements of creative nonfiction in writing. So we just had last week a workshop in Pennsylvania where all 13 writers stayed in a big house together. And we hired a close friend of mine who's also a professional writing writing teacher to come be like a writing coach for us. And we did these workshops and we did public presentation, quick six minute versions of our essays. And we really tried to boil down like what is interesting about this stuff? How do we make food (laughs) history accessible to broad audience? Right. And it was so inspiring. it was such a non stodgy, non-pretentious academic affair and it was so uh, rewarding to think about writing and audience and food history all in the same space. So although that's just one essay that I'm working on, I feel like that experience is gonna go st- stay with me through any future bigger projects because it's made me much more committed to the craft of writing and thinking about you know, not just the content of the stories we tell, but the actual narrativity of it and, and why that matters. Why, if we actually want people to read this stuff that we think is important and how we get them to want
2: to read it. Wow. I need to get the number of that <laughs> yeah. person you brought in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I think we could all use that kind of training. I know. <laughs> I'm trying
0: to tell her to, to start a, you know, professional website doing it because I think people, people would need this and maybe want it
2: well, I'll be number one. Um, (laughs) Okay, so this is my last question for you. We've sort of already touched on this from you talking about your class on eating and memory and um, a few other things. But I love also thinking about the subjectivity of food and how so often what we know about our food also stems from intimate histories, childhood memories, social positioning etc. And the other day I asked our comrade and edge effects darling, Brian Hamilton, what's your favorite canned food? (laughs) And he, of course, made my inquiry way better by breaking it down into three sub questions. So, Anna, give it to me. Most excited to open. Okay. Most used. Secret crush. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I think my most used, maybe a boring one, is probably canned tomatoes. They are uh, the most used in my kitchen because we do lots of stews and tomato sauces and things. And I think canned tomatoes really hold up well in the can and, and make really good bases for those things. Plus, when I've done home canning of my own, tomatoes are usually the one thing that I actually do in any kind of quantity. Most excited to open, I would have to say probably (laughs) chipotles and adobo sauce, which are, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but you know, you can buy them in the kind of Ethnic food aisles. And, um, you know, there's smoked jalapenos, chipotles, and then there's this
2: be- beautiful mm-hmm.
0: kind of <laughs> tomato based adobo sauce. And they're really awesome because you can, you know, pull out the chipotles and chop them up, or you can just get a spoonful of the sauce and they're spicy but smoky and you can add them to almost anything. And if you don't use the whole pan, you can freeze them and then just scoop out a chunk at a time. So they're very versatile and always mean that I'm making something that I'm going to be excited to eat. And the secret crush, I feel like I can't embarrass to admit. It I know it's a divisive dish, but the canned ingredients for green bean casserole—the uh, the green beans and the of oh, mushroom yes. soup and the French fried onions—are the green bean casserole is my one of my partner's favorite dishes Thanksgiving time or otherwise. And uh, although I kind of make fun of him for loving it so much, I admit <laughs> that it's grown on me too. And uh,
2: you also that comforting love it. <laughs>
0: creaminess has a place.
2: It always <laughs> yeah, does. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is a awesome list and I've loved talking to you today and congrats again on your wonderful book. Thank
0: you. It's been a lot of fun to talk about it and I'm excited that it's out in the world.
2: Me too. I think we all are. All All right. right. Thank Thank you. you.
0: Bye-bye.
1: That was Farron Levesque, PhD candidate in the department of history at the university of Wisconsin Madison and community kitchen coordinator at Memphis Tilt. in conversation with Anna Zeta, assistant professor at professional practice at Oklahoma State University, and author of Canned, The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry, just released this spring from University of California Press. Learn more about Anna's work at anazeta.org. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the nelson institute for environmental studies at the university of wisconsin-madison today's episode was produced by brian hamilton farron levec and me carly griffith with special thanks to alex dane the music you're listening to is by julian lynch Stay tuned for more podcast episodes in the coming weeks. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.